0: It is Tuesday, April 21st, 2020, and coming up, we'll review the Michael Jordan doc and tell you why musicians may have more in common with Scottie Pippen than they originally thought. Plus, we'll also get into this day in music history and our dollar slice takes. This is the tune-up. Welcome on into the show. My name is Denny Gallagher, and I'm joined by the Snare Campaign provocateur You may know him from his three-episode arc on One Tree Hill. It's Benny Horowitz.
1: <laughs> well, I think I had a song on One Tree Hill once. You did. That's why I did, brought did it up. Did you so, Google that? So, yeah. I was doing the uh,
0: <laughs> Han backstory for this, because this one requires some explaining. I was binging, and one of my sh- uh, favorite shows in high school that I've young revisited was that show Chuck. And and uh, I'm just going along here watching the show. And I'm like, hold up, wait a minute. Like, here's looking at me. Kid is on it. So then I was like, wait a minute. What else? And COVID affairs. uh, Uh One Tree Hill. So those Mm -hmm. checks are still coming into the Horowitz household. So it's good to see. It's good to see.
1: You should see the the sense, the literal (laughs) sense that trickle in from things like that. But at the time, honestly, I think stuff like that is cool as hell.
0: It's funny that you brought up uh, soundtracking and stuff like that because the Michael Jordan documentary debuted last night, and we're going to get into this in a little bit, but just trying to segue from one thing to the other. Music, you've done uh, TV shows, you've done music videos and and all that stuff, so we'll get to the wonderful soundtrack of this, the Last Dance documentary in just a little bit and what else we learned from it. But first, I want to get into this day in music history.
1: All right, Benny. What do you got? All right. I know I said I was only going to do two for the inaugural This Day in Music History, but I can't resist again. I'm doing two because I found two that are very crucial to me. Now, you'll remember when we did the tournament that I had made sure that Black Sabbath Paranoid was in our tournament, and I said it because it marked the birth of heavy metal in a lot of ways. Now, one band that gets not as much credit but should get credit for the birth of heavy metal is Deep Purple, a classic band in my history. Like, if you saw me when I was 14 years old and you were like, what do you listen to more of? Rolling Stones, Beatles, The Who, or Deep Purple? I would have told you Deep Purple. That's my shit. So, this day in music history, April 20th, the band Deep Purple performed, gave their concert debut in Tastrup, Denmark. So that being said, the birth of metal, 1968, the band Deep Purple performed and gave their concert debut in Tastrup, Denmark. I'm just going for the pronunciation there. (laughs) Sometimes it's a little tough doing Danish. Uh, Then, 1986, my namesake, Vladimir Horowitz, Returned to Russia to perform after being away for almost 60 years. Now, I got to be honest. I don't know any more about this story than that. (laughs) Now, apparently, I know that Vladimir Horowitz was somewhere else and came back to Russia. I just learned it. But the funny thing about this is, like, through the course of my life, if you uh, looked up the name Horowitz prior to Google, if you Googled the name Horowitz afterwards... The most well-known Horowitz in the last, like, hundred years is this man, Vladimir <laughs> Horowitz. I believe he's a pianist, And uh, he made many records, and now through the years, because of my name, I own a lot of Vladimir Horowitz records in my collection that I never listened to. But he came back to Russia in 1986. Apparently, I guess he left, on my loose math here, in 1926, which makes sense. It's not far when uh, my grandfather left Russia. It wasn't the best place then. So, Vladimir, big ups.
0: I mean, I don't even know how to follow that, uh, so I guess we might might as well just reference the Mamas and the Papas real quick, because on, on this day in 1981, John Phillips of the Mama and the Papas was jailed for five years after pleading guilty to drug possession. Uh, it doesn't go any further about what kind of drugs it was, but I'm not guessing that you get five years for weed, right? I don't know.
1: Maybe. I mean, maybe you, can you got five years won. for enough of weed. That's true. That's and... very true. <laughs>
0: the sentence, that's... however, was suspended after thirty days, and then see, this is bullshit. Okay, Phillips starts touring the U.S. lecturing against the dangers of taking drugs.
1: Oh, that's how it got reduced. <laughs> so he had he had the mamas and the papas had some. Hotshot L.A. lawyer (laughs) called into the play. I'm going to assume he got arrested somewhere weird and they gave him five years as like a show that they're tough on crime or drugs. And then some high powered lawyer called made like, you know, a three thousand dollar donation to the PBA of whatever town he was arrested in, got out in 30 days and had to walk around lecturing kids not to smoke. What's funny about those things? I don't know. I learned so much about drugs from D.A.R.E. So it's usually uh, doesn't really work, right?
0: <laughs> and also, Benny, uh, kind of tying into what's been going on with celebrities uh, rounding around our cause, on this day in 1985, We Are The World was number one on the UK singles charts. I don't know why on the website we use to uh, find these this day in music history, it's not off the cuff, obviously, because, I mean, I don't think... Uh, I mean, Benny probably has all the stuff on the top. I need to do a, a little bit more digging for this stuff. It says in 1985, Bruce Springsteen. So I was like, oh, I'm going to appease
1: our masses big time. Uh, then, if you want to know what We Are the World looked like, it was basically every major artist from that time with one earphone can over their ear hold on, hold on, and the on, other Tino. one with a finger in their ear. Do you ear think I haven't going, seen the We Are the World video? Because... <laughs> <laughs> making that like super intense face, like kind of like that shit I saw during a global citizen <laughs> online event the other day, which I was going to bring up the rolling stones
0: kind of diminished the role of drums just completely. You know what?
1: <laughs> I mean, this is what's funny about this. So I-, I have experience with this too. Now, now somebody I played with for a really long time, Brian, mm-hmm. you know, he kind of got his start playing like acoustic guitar and then moved. So, when it came a time for him to, like, strip back, do radio shows acoustic and stuff like that, he knew how to play it. He knew there was, like, a different approach. You know, you can't fucking strum out an acoustic guitar like you would in an electric and expect the song to have the same kind of breadth and stuff. You need to change things up. You need to change your picking and your timing and different stuff to make it work. And I think a lot of these artists are put in really naked situations that they've never been in before. Like a lot of people think they can just unplug their electric guitar, start playing an acoustic and the song is as good. And it's not. And you'll notice too. One thing about global citizen I thought was funny is you could tell from the younger artists to the older artists that the older artists had recording gear at home. (laughs) So, so like Billy Joe Armstrong is set up with like, a beautiful mic in front of his face, a beautiful mic next to his acoustic and Billy Eilish and her brother are just like on one mic in a room. And it sounds like dog shit. Even Taylor Swift sounded bad. So I, th- I think it's funny. You can tell, uh, the types of people that probably home record and the ones who don't because they sound a lot better. And the error that the, that these
0: people made the money in music. I mean, like you, you and Brian were joking. Like we don't have nineties money. Like
1: we don't even have two thousands money. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think Billie Eilish and Taylor Swift managed to get through that all right. Do you think Billie Eilish has money yet? I mean, that's very new for her. Yeah, I mean, but at the very least, Billie Eilish has like the last two years of touring. So even if she doesn't have like, you know, major, major like record money, which she might not yet, God knows the promotion dollars that went into her, you know, videos and and recording and, and advertising. I'm sure she had a shit ton to pay back. But when you sell records on that scale, normally you pay yourself back and start making royalties pretty fast. Cause that's a lot of fucking records. But she also, I mean, you got to imagine someone like that is getting paid half a million dollars to headline a festival right now, mm. you know, and you do one festival season as Billy Eilish. You should have fucking give money to your kids money. Honestly. Yeah. Well, speaking of,
0: uh, generational wealth if you will benny let's talk about michael jordan and the last dance uh espn debuted the uh first two parts of a 10-part documentary about the 1997-1998 bulls on sunday night here in the u.s Uh, i think it hits netflix worldwide later this year and this documentary has been uh, highly uh, sought after. It was supposed to debut during the NBA Finals. We've talked about this on, on the pod. And they moved it up because of this global pandemic. Uh, it, and the first two episodes talked about kind of the rise of Michael Jordan at North Carolina from a, a kid that got cut from his basketball team. you've all heard heard that story uh, to North Carolina to excelling with the pros. but the way it tells this story is very interesting because it all starts in 1997, 1998 and the decision that then Bulls GM Jerry Krauss made to not bring anybody back with the exception of Michael, after the 1998 season. uh, Phil Jackson, who after this went on to coach the Kobe Shaq Lakers and, and all of that stuff, coined the phrase of this season as the last dance because prior to that, uh, Bulls had won championships five of the last seven seasons. So the last dance, uh, just to kind of give people the historical context for that, super significant, and I think the very interesting thing uh, this documentary did, Two very interesting things. I think they used music in a way that most docs, I don't think, are able to. Uh, I mean, the, the Bulls had that great in- introduction music, but also just using music of that time uh, to kind of communicate how dominant Michael Jordan was underneath his game highlights. Very interesting. Benny, what was your initial I- impressions uh, on, on first viewing of the first two parts
1: of this thing? I mean, it was awesome. I, I can't remember the last time, too, that you, like, knew everybody was watching the same thing at the same time. That something wasn't a streaming thing. That something wasn't, oh, did you watch this yet? Like, you knew anyone mildly interested in sports, and probably their whole families at this point, had to watch The Last Dance last <laughs> night, you know? Like, it was like a rule in my house. Like, that that was going to be on at 9 o'clock last mm. night. So, it's cool. I, I, I mean, again, it's these strange... Things that you know happen in a in a pandemic and a crisis that that mix things up and make things kind of interesting again. Um, there's a couple things you know because of my age. You know, I'm 39. I didn't really you know get into hoops hoops where I'm like hardcore about it probably until 89 90. You know, um, when the Knicks started shaping up and my parents are really into it and I fell in love with. David Robinson, that early generation Spurs team. So when I came into the fold, Michael Jordan was there. He was he was a great, you know, the posters were there. The Air Jordans were on people's feet. The logo was already going on. He hadn't won his rings yet, but like Jordan was in the house. Everybody knew who he was. And he was the iconic basketball player. So what was really cool about someone my age just getting from the start is... I didn't realize, like, how uh, his college career was that transformative, the relationship he had with Dean Smith and how that kind of shaped him for the future. And then also just the the speed in which he went from an NBA rookie to the best player on the team. And you heard those guys, you know, talking about like, hey, first practice. Like, I knew, like, this guy had something that, like, we didn't have, you know? And then he even said it. He's like, basically, it was my team after game three. <laughs> game three is rookie year. You want to, you know, the shot. And then it's his team. And it was just, like, uh, Jordan mania from there. I And I had never realized the, the speed and the immediacy of it like that. And now that I've been a basketball fan for so long and I've watched the very normal grace period that you always give rookies even the superstars you know what i mean even lebron james's rookie season you know he had so many holes in his game and different things that like you still had question marks you're like can this guy ever learn how to shoot is he ever going to learn how to shoot uh when you saw kobe early on you're like is this guy ever going to stop shooting does he know how to do the other stuff and i know there was some of those things with jordan too apparently at the time but uh, it seems like everybody knew really fast, and I don't know if that's just revisionist history or the way I'm seeing it, but I think that's a really cool part of this documentary.
0: Except they highlighted two people, one of which was Clyde Charles, Fraser, yeah, yeah, who yeah. was uh not having Jordan Mania, which I thought was so interesting. What a bad take that uh, Clyde, when He first came in the league was like, Yeah, like this Jordan kid's got nothing. And the fact that he put that in shows that MJ, who executive produces the whole thing,
1: still has the grudge. (laughs) Oh, 100%. I think that's one thing that's going to become clear because apparently we haven't even seen the the nuts and bolts of like Jordan's day to day and what he really did to people yet, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think you're going to see that. But I like that when you, you know, you're Walt Clyde Frazier. Like some kid walks into the league, you try to chip him down. I like how Charles Oakley kind of kind of roughed him up a little, too, in those first, uh, you know, in that interview. Yeah. That's somebody, you know, even though he's like, obviously Michael Jordan's better than me, give it time before you're going to give him the locker room. And I think it was probably good for Jordan to have that stuff around. You know, he seemed like, and one thing I'll give, you know, you got to give to the guy. Um, you know, one of the problems you hear all the time with, with young athletes and superstars is they're uncoachable or they think they're so good or you know whatever you've heard it like a thousand times jordan was obviously you know from dean smith to phil jackson extremely receptive to their coaching and systems and worked in simpatico with his coaches like uh that's a big deal i think there's something to say for that too
0: for years in grade school you, you always heard about you always heard about michael jordan getting cut from the high school basketball team but what i thought was so interesting uh, about this this doc is they used that stretch in the beginning of the uh, 97, 98 season where, you know, uh, they didn't have Scotty because he he was uh, he pushed the surgery off a little bit um, right. because of th- the way things were going in uh, his, his contract negotiation. And uh, to kind of g- give you a shallow end to dive into of his competitiveness on why he is the way he is. Uh, they they showed some practice footage and then took you back to, to learn about how his like dad and his like brothers never let him win and how he was vying right. for his dad's attention, which I'm sure yeah. later in, in the doc is going to become a, a much more centerpiece of the whole thing. But to kind of yeah. see those early things is incredible and it kind of uh, builds out a legacy in, in this whole thing that is even more than I think people would have initially imagined.
1: Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. Now, one thing I noticed today, you know, I opened up social media and of course, like posthumously, everyone's just fucking tearing Jerry Krause apart, you know, (laughs) Um, and I got I got to be honest. So, you know, I'm watching this. We'll, We'll get to the actual nuts and bolts of it later. But my initial reaction to that stuff is I feel bad for the guy. You know what I mean? I feel bad for a guy getting made fun of by people out in the open in front of other people when. You obviously can't say shit back. Like obviously, some people can handle that, and some people can handle it well. Some people can't. And the one, the one thing uh, I could really empathize with Jerry Krauss about, right, is from experience, if you're an insecure person, success is hard to grapple with if you don't get credit and nobody gives a shit, and the general concept that nobody will. So. I think the biggest problem with Jerry Krause at some point was the fact that, like, you need to realize, even Scottie Pippen seemed to realize, and he said it in an early interview. It's not like you're in a normal situation here where, like, you're building teams and people are going to have the same narrative. You have the most generational, unique, athletic talent in front of you. So it's it's like being the, you know... The guy who writes or arranges melodies for uh, a a gigantic artist, you know, like, what is it, Bernie Taupin, who wrote Mm. all the Elton John songs, or like somebody like that, not being comfortable with them not being a household name. And I can even say from experience, like, I had to deal with that personally. When I went from like, sort of a punk and hardcore world, to more of like a, mainstream radio rock world a little bit i got to see firsthand that you know where people focus the attention and the talent um and it became pretty clear after a while that there are a bunch of people i was working with who probably would have been fine if somebody else was in my seat you know and then after a while you start getting feedback and you get enough feedback that Uh, you're like waiting for somebody to say your name. You know what I mean? And it's like if you just spent the last, you know, seven or eight years constructing something that you're so proud of and there's nothing, like you're literally living and dying by the wins of this team, you put the team together and you win five championships and like nobody's giving you credit. I can understand where a person of a certain ilk or a person of a certain insecurity could start getting fritzed by that. I could see where, and I dare to say, because I don't know the man, I, I clearly passed away now, but if somebody's a little weak and somebody has that kind of weakness on the inside, something like that can get to him. So I, I wanted to just like, you know, like even a novice hoops fan, doesn't know who manufactured like the Spurs dynasty, doesn't know who manufactured the Warriors dynasty, just like Radiohead is one of my favorite bands in the world. And I always forget their drummer's name. I don't really know, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and some things are just like that. And you have to be happy and comfortable with the fact that you're the drummer in Radiohead. And that's a pretty fucking awesome thing. Or you have to be comfortable that you're the person who is behind the scenes of five championships and not want to get credit, but not everyone is built for that. And clearly maybe he wasn't.
0: Well, I think the interesting thing that people need to know here is yes, this may be a 10 part like oral history, but this is Michael Jordan's perspective on the whole thing. None of this footage gets right. out If it's not for Michael, yes, was it was entertainment that filmed it in 97, 98. Sure. But it's uh, it, it needed Michael's approval. We had a, uh, Steve Kerr on NBA Radio this weekend. Uh, trapped in the closet, trapped in the closet, just like Benny Kerr. always is. And he talked about, you know the the process of getting the approvals for this um, mm-hmm. and how the whole locker room looked at Michael and Michael was like, yeah, we're doing this and they're like, right on and then the amount of times this project started and stopped over the years and eventually you know it, it came to, to your TV screens that was all Michael's doing so any right. any view that you see anybody in this thing it is heavily influenced if not all by Michael Jordan
1: Yeah it's a very good point it's a very good point point. and i mean and and even you know uh, you know even in the the second second episode of this You know, they clearly show the struggles of the Bulls without Scottie Pippen and the fact that without the complete lineup, they couldn't do it. And Jerry Krause literally not only drafted for Scottie Pippen, he spotted him prior to the draft and targeted him and traded for him, which got to give a lot of credit for that. You know that this whole thing probably doesn't happen if it wasn't for that.
0: And the other interesting thing, kind of building off what I, I just said about Michael's perspective, and the only reason why I, I, I kind of started to formulate this was they painted the picture of what the Bulls were just very briefly before Michael, and um, yeah, I, I'm going to sure. assume at some point they're going to paint what the Bulls have been since Michael and Michael going to the Wizards and, and stuff like that. So that stretch is all that Chicago Bulls fans have been hanging their hat on ever since Michael left.
1: I mean, what, the Jimmy Butler, Luau Dang, Joachim oh, Noah on. teams like, didn't, <laughs> didn't fill the point. <laughs> Fun team. Nah, if they want a ring, yeah, I get it. Yeah, they weren't good enough. They weren't good enough. The Celtics needed a nemesis, you know. <laughs>
0: that was honestly one of my favorite parts of this documentary. Now, you can watch these hardwood classics on NBA TV, and you can watch Jordan versus Larry Bird in the 86-87 playoffs. But to actually like see that and, and to hear Danny Ainge's comments and to hear Larry Bird yeah. talking about it, just un- Magic unbelievable. Magic Johnson, yeah. Absolutely. The yeah, fact that, that if that happens now, say Michael Jordan has to play under like the pretense of rings are everything and he goes for 49 in a playoff game and loses he goes for 63 the speculation that entire offseason if that happens in 2020 is that he is going to try to force his way out of chicago
1: yeah 100 100 now i want to wrap this on my end with one thing i know again i heard the vitriol for jerry Krause today i know i just supported him and (laughs) tried to to see his side because that's what i'm trying to do denny you know (laughs) we gotta we gotta do this for each other right now okay um But all of that being said, and everything I just said defending the guy, when, like, the best athlete of the last, like, 30, 40 years tells you that he wants to play until it's over, uh, like, you have to do it. Like, you got to sort it out (laughs) every time, regardless of the circumstance. So, obviously... I say all of this with the fact that what he did was a gigantic fucking mistake. I mean, I think that's obvious, right? Yeah. All
0: right, Benny, we're about halfway through this podcast, which means it's time for our Dallas Slice Take.
1: Uh, you know, I'm not usually one for facial scanning technology, right? <laughs> Didn't set it up on my phone. Don't like that stuff. I, I even... You even forced me to get Zoom interviewing Howard the other day. I wasn't going to get it because this stuff scares the crap out of me. But in this rare instance, I would advocate to use facial scanning technology on those social distancing protesters I've been seeing around and perhaps maybe ban them from hospitals for a couple of years, right? Maybe like a two year ban, just like, hey, we see you. OK, I get your point. You're good on your own. Enjoy your liberty. And next time you get sick, just rub some fucking oatmeal on it or something. Or do whatever you do at your compound. Because uh, I don't want to deal with that anymore. So go handle yourselves. Drink your diet fucking giant 64-ounce Coca-Colas. And then create your own diabetes medication in the bathtub, okay? Hmm.
0: All right, Benny. My dollar slice take of the weekend. I'm going to kind of keep it music-based. So I don't know if you've been seeing this, but Sports Illustrated has been doing daily covers recently. Uh, It's part of a whole initiative, and there's a whole backstory to the Maven Corporation taking over Sports Illustrated. That's not very positive. But I want to be positive because I like this idea of daily covers for big sports stories because as papers continue to die, you know, and we're getting less and less of these tabloid papers in cities. The idea of like a New York style back page doesn't exist. So for these major companies to kind of put these daily covers about the big story is great. Here's my dollar slice take. I think it would be really cool as you know people put out music more and more frequently now for to have daily covers for songs. Meaning that mm. I don't know if, 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 if this can work in the way you upload music. But when we upload the podcast, I could change the graphic that you see on the screen. I think you could change each song photo icon that you see on your phone or, or, or on Spotify. I think you can, you, know, you change it and you can make it seasonal. You can make it whatever you want to do. But a daily changing updated cover for songs, I think that could be pretty cool.
1: Yeah, I think that's fun. Yeah.
0: That'd be fun
1: for the people. Fun for the people. You know, people. I, I imagine that guy from Maven as like uh, J.K. Simmons from the Spider-Man <laughs> movies. Like just some evil ass like... But I guess that doesn't even work because G- J.K. Simmons cared deeply about his own newspaper. So, so I guess he's not the Maven guy. Some other fucking obtuse businessman. Man, they're a bunch of... They're a bunch of... Mm. Mm -mm. I don't want to curse. I don't want to curse on this holy day 420. I don't want to curse.
0: All right, Benny, one more thing on the last dance thing that I'd love to touch on with you. I want to talk about Scottie Pippen. One of the big parts of episode two was the fact that uh, early in his career, he took a seven-year, $18 million deal with the Bulls. The owner of the Bulls at the time that he signed it was like I don't want you to come renegotiate, which you know that's some that's some rich guy stuff right there. Be like, all right, mm-hmm. that's, you're you're locked into that, but you totally get it uh, from Scott's perspective. He came from a a large family, a large poor family in Arkansas, so I, t- I totally get why he would want the security over uh, the potential big payday. But I want to kind of tie this into music with you, Benny. Mm. Uh in, in your experience, have you seen a music equivalent to Scottie Pippen?
1: Yeah, I mean, so yes, I have. So so the idea of uh taking somebody young when they don't know what they're doing yet, maximizing your length of the relationship based on the potential that you see, that's like nothing new, right? Mm. You know, record labels, managers. People like that have been stepping in for uh, artists and athletes and, you know, of all kinds for many, many years to do that exact thing. Uh, So, so from a business end, it makes perfect sense for them. I very much resented when I heard like Jerry Reinstor sitting there being like, well, you know, well, it was a bad decision for Scotty or something. I'm like, fuck you, dude. Like you gave him that decision on a fucking silver platter and told the kid to take it. Um, so, I, you know, I did a little research. Obviously, there's countless, countless stories of uh, uh, musicians and artists who have just been hosed. Especially back in the, the 50s and 60s where, you know, black music was essentially just owned by the fucking mob and racketeered. And, you know, people were literally just not paid. People who played on the albums were just not paid. So... You know, stuff like that is um, par for the course in the music industry back then. Uh, I had read that Little Richard sold his publishing to Tutti Frutti for $50 hmm. and got half a cent per royalty after that. Um, you know, things like that always exist. But this is like the old uh, Victory Records model. I don't know if you remember that label, but f- for a million years, their whole MO was to sign baby bands to just. Ironclad, like eight record contracts. So, by the time a band, you know, certain bands that came from that label got to a point where they outgrew Victory Records, either the major label that they were going to go to had to uh, compensate Victory Records to let them go, or they had to forego any money they had, or literally, bands literally broke up, you know, because it's like we're into this for so much money. That, uh, that, that we're better off breaking up and starting a new band because we'll never get out of this. And But for a label like that, it made perfect sense. They basically were throwing a dart at bands, and if one of those four baby bands broke huge, they make their money back on all of them because their initial investments aren't even that much. So that's the scary part that people do. The difference with that and Scotty Pippen is he was actually being paid year to year. You know, when you're a musician, if you do a record that is either not good or nobody pushes for you, like you just owe people money. At least Scottie Pipp was (laughs) getting money for his services. You know what I mean? Um, But uh, yeah, like time after time, you can find the methods of taking somebody who have never seen money before, throwing a lot in front of their face or what they deem to be a lot. And then taking advantage. So so take it like this, right? If you have a a 16-year-old, 17-year-old artist who doesn't really know what they're doing, and you're like, hey, I'll give you $200,000 to sign to my label. You know what I mean? If you come from a certain place, if you have no other offers, it would would seem like something you'd just be foolish not to do. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Even a million dollars, it doesn't matter. But the thing that people in the music business sometimes maybe they do now, like don't realize is the fact that it's not your money. That's yeah. in your record. So so you could have this million dollars now, but if your record makes a million dollars, they're taking it right off the top and you don't get a dime. If your record makes half a million dollars, you know how you now owe half a million dollars to somebody, you know? <laughs> so like this has been the classic music industry scam forever.
0: Benny, I'm super curious. So during that season, Scottie Pippen held out during the 97-98 season. Is there any sort of equivalent in music of being able to hold out for kind of a, a, a bigger payday and kind of bet on yourself like that?
1: Yeah, there's some tricks that people have tried. So if you don't have it in exact language in your contract, you might be able to get a, uh, a live album to count. You know, you might be able to get a double album to count for two. Uh, you might be able to get an acoustic session to count, B-Sides album to count. So there are some tricks that if the label doesn't uh, put it precisely in the contract or you put it that, you can finish up your records by doing things like that. Um, and then the Scottie Pippen surgery thing could be akin to this. So sometimes a band will still be on a label. They'll know that there's like a mutual disinterest, but there's, there's a tie there and you'll take the money. And instead of putting out the record, you make really shitty fucking songs and you send them back to the label and you hope they drop you clean. So that has also existed. And, and that may be akin to like where there's such an obvious, disinterest from the two sides, or at least one side, that you make it really difficult for them to to keep you on and keep a relationship good. And that might be pretty close to his decision to get surgery, fucking with the team and fucking with their progress a little.
0: I love that. That's amazing. I I just picture like, uh, not like you guys, but just bands in like, general, they're like, you know, fuck this. I'm out. I'm going to get this elective surgery and, and that's how you get like a like
1: Christmas record or like a like yeah exactly record. That's exactly how it happens. Yeah. I, I would guarantee I don't know what the numbers are, but I would guarantee that like 80% of band's live albums are the last record of their contract.
0: <laughs> that's so funny. Plenty of ways to get in contact with the show. You can email us at the tuneup podcast at gmail.com. Two Ps in there for those who you plan along at home. You can tweet at us, DM us, at the HQ on Twitter and Instagram. And as always, you can follow him on Twitter, at Benny Horowitz. one number one in your mind, number one in your heart, number one on Twitter. I'm at Benny underscore Gallagher. Benny, you got anything else?
1: Yeah, happy 420. Just uh, take two and pass so that blunt will last. Even if it's the day after. Everybody loves everybody.
0: This has been the TuneUp.